Hello, fellow time travelers. I am Sasha from the Fiction Paradox Podcast. And I am Skip from the Fiction Paradox Podcast. And I'm Brooke. We're the Fiction Paradox, the only podcast dedicated to the BBC Books 8th Doctor Adventures in the whole world that we know of. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy, Enjoy your, your travels. travels. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, I'm Larry Van Mersbergen, the host of the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast. Now that you're reading the Doctor Who Target books in story order and enjoying the thorough discussion of them, maybe you'd like to collect them, or even collect the hardcover editions, or maybe the Pinnacle American editions. For all things in the world of Doctor Who merchandise, from books to the Dalek weather vanes and Dalek cufflinks, to the really unusual. Tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Podbean. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video Junkyard Podcast. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Happy listening. Hello, fellow time travelers. I'm Fraser Hines, and I played Jamie McCrimmon in Doctor Who. And you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels, or as Jamie might say, enjoy your travels. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the fishy task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. I'm sorry, that's all I could come up with. I'm so sorry. My name is Tony Whit, and today we have a not-so-fishy three-person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979. That would be me. Yeah, that's how we do that thing that we do. <laughs> There's also our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes but not has previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello, hello. I made sure not to be fishy. I'm freshly showered, so... Okay. <laughs> uh, it started freezing a bit, so it'll be fine. We'll just talk through it. Just push through it. That's fine. And finally, we have our semi-novice fan, one who's seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast. And this time, it's, it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. By the end of this, I should have learned how to look straight into the camera as I try to remember. Oh, there we go. Which part? of this display is the camera. <laughs> and this is the first time I think I have seen Dalton since uh, Tony and Dalton and I all had dinner in, was it February? It's been a long time. Yes, just before yeah. just before Dalton left for uh, a while. California. Yeah, exactly. 
Also, the second to last time I actually ate indoors in a restaurant, maybe third to last. <sighs> yeah. Anti penultimate. <laughs> and sushi buffet. Oh. Oh, how appropriate, though. Sushi buffet. <laughs> yes. This is also our live recording for Chicago TARDIS. So I'm going to ask everyone to briefly unmute their mics and say hello. 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 Just to prove hello. to the lawyers that we are indeed live. That's why we're doing it. Um, <laughs> Unfortunately, due to the general viral unhappiness this year, we cannot do this in person, nor are we actually on the Chicago TARDIS schedule, mainly because we tend to like to talk longer than 45 minutes. So go figure. But we're very pleased to have you here along with us. If you like what you're hearing, check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you'll receive, among other possible goodies, face masks, mugs, and t-shirts with our logos on them. Just like giving to PBS. Face masks with our mugs on them and our logo. Yes, exactly. But not a Target book, since we know you have so many of them. You've taken the sinking them in the ocean with a bunch of pescatons to guard them. Just to say thank you for uh, yeah, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. I don't know why I'm snapping my fingers. I'm not going to be able to edit this later. And as usual, <laughs> we'd like to thank our regular patrons, some of whom are here today. Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby D- Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sumnall, Dave Davis, and Guy Lambert. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Thank y'all. you all. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In fact, we expect you to. And now... Just when you thought it was safe to go back into your Target collection, <laughs> we present maybe the oddest of the Target books with our discussion of Victor Pemberton's novelization of The Pescatons. Mm. Yeah. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who the Pescatons, adapted by Victor Pemberton from a script for an album released by Argo Records in 1976, published by Target Books in September 1991. As of this recording in November of 2020, this title is currently out of print and is available in the original audio format through Audible.com, 128 pages. Yeah, wow. That was fast. All right. This book (laughs) actually (laughs) represents, yeah, a little bit. This book actually represents three unusual milestones. Don't forget the Australian Book Club Ooh. edition. <laughs> Which is an LP, what, apparently. What the button? The Pescatons? Oh, they... duh. Yes, audio. <laughs> Sorry. Too much, you know, pressing okay. for Thanksgiving. All right. Let's... <laughs> this book actually represents three unusual milestones. I think I'm getting a lag because everyone came in all at once there. For one, it's technically the first ever original Doctor Who audio drama, such as it is. I'm sure someone may make the case that if it weren't for this record album, there would have never been a big finish, but that doesn't give Big Finish nearly enough credit. For another, it's the last book published under the Target imprint. The three remaining books published as Target novelizations, which were Power of the Daleks, Evil of the Daleks, and The Paradise of Death, were all published under Virgin's Doctor Who Books imprint without the Target logo. The reason why The Ghosts of Endspace is only a technically Target book is because it was actually part of Virgin's Missing Adventure series. And I just realized something, something that'll help with, with the lag. One second. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> that's good, though. It just cuts uh, over to the doctor. That's, that's good. Yes, that should help on my end. And finally, it's one of only three Target books total 
that novelize a non-televised story released in another format. And no, I'm not counting the season 23 unproduced scripts. We will be covering those, but they don't really count as technically Target because they were actually Target. And the only one to novelize a story that up to that point had only been released on vinyl and then on tape and CD rather than an adaptation of a radio play. For reasons that I've never been able to track down, Argo Records, an imprint of DECA, approached the BBC in the mid-70s to do a record album presenting an original Doctor Who story. It was nothing to do with the genesis of the Daleks LP, as many people think, because that actually wasn't released until 1978, a good two years after this. This was released in July of 1976, between seasons 13 and 14, but I've chosen to cover it now because we might as well get the damn thing over with and done. Also, for reasons that have been largely unexamined, rather than asking someone currently working for the show to do a script, presumably because they were too busy, Victor Pemberton, who had last written Fury from the Deep in 1968, was hired to do this one. In fact, Pemberton is creating this original story from that earlier script. So if you're feeling any deja vu while reading this book, my only response to that is we. which is kind of what the story is. Not much else to say about the original story, except that the only characters in the novel who are also on the record are Zor and Professor Emerson, and we never get dialogue from Emerson. Zor is played by Canadian actor Bill Mitchell. Yes, Zor has a Canadian accent on the record, (laughs) who appeared in Frontier in Space as a newscaster. The story is broken into two episodes on the album, complete with opening and closing music. And at one point, the doctor distracts a pescaton by singing Hello, Dolly. As a matter of fact, I have a clip of this. That would be arresting. Yes. In fact, just to show you how arresting, I'm going to play just that clip. At this point, the doctor and Sarah have rescued a baby who was abandoned. That's not in the book for some reason. And I think it's because it's linked to this Hello, Dolly moment. So I'm going to play this for you. God help us all. The creature reared up, its long pointed teeth moving in for the attack. For one moment, it looked as though the creature was going to ignore me and claw straight into Sarah Jane and the baby. To regain its attention, I had to do just about everything except turn a cartwheel. Thinking about it, I'm not too sure I didn't even do that. Anything I could lay my hands on, I threw at it. Stones, dustbin lids, milk bottles, even an old boot which somebody had discarded in rather a hurry. But still the creature ignored me and slithered closer and closer towards Sarah Jane and the baby. Finally, I discovered the one secret weapon that no respectable creature worth its salt could resist. I sang and danced. (laughs) Well, hello, darling. It worked. The creature turned its attention from Sarah Jane and the baby and came towards me. Singing and dancing dementedly into a side street, I managed to give it the slip. Yes. <laughs> Who wouldn't be angry? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That would god. that would chase off any fish creatures. Oh god, help us all. And this is the story that we're gonna be discussing today. So let's have a dramatic reading of the back cover, shall we? I don't have it handy because I'm using my phone for camera. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. Likely story. I've been working on that excuse all morning long. Oh, I love my huge forced perspective hands all morning long. All morning long. Okay, Uh, Dalton. I I have it pulled up. I I can read it. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. An invasion of meteorites and an environmental crisis. 
A scientific expedition has disappeared from the bed of the Thames estuary where a giant meteorite had landed years previously. Having landed the TARDIS in the same vicinity, the Doctor and Sarah Jane are attacked at night by a vast, roaring creature. Something reminds the Doctor of his encounter with the marine denizens of the planet Pesca, but before long his worst fears are confirmed. Strange meteorites are landing all over the world, and the Pescaton invasion has begun. Do you want me to read the last little bit? Um, if you want to, sure. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> The Pescaton, starring Tom Baker as the Doctor and Elizabeth Sladen as Sarah Jane Smith, was released as an LP record in 1976 and re-released in 1985. Victor Pemberton, who wrote the original script for the LP, has been variously scriptwriter, script editor, and novelizer of several Doctor Who television stories. Yes, and not particularly good at any of it. Um, <laughs> he, he also happened to appear in an episode, by the way. He was in the Moon Base as a, a Frenchman, which is why I made that weep joke. Anyway. I like that. That would be like on the casting call. A Frenchman. What part yeah. does he play? You know, he's just French. Yeah, it's just character. do an accent. It's fine. <laughs> That's fine. So first impressions, Dalton, what were your first impressions of this one? Fish people. Um, <laughs> I Even without even without remembering uh, Victor Pemberton doing uh, Fury of the Deep, I was like, this feels familiar. The cover, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Can everybody see the cover? Because um, does everybody have a cover in front of them? Because I really should display that. My mind won't hold it. It was so non-memorable. <laughs> the doctor looks unimpressed. Uh, Sarah Jane looks a bit worried. John's got it. <laughs> They're looking at the script. Like, really? This is Yeah. It? And the Pescaton looks tiny compared to what they're supposed to actually be. Be. Yeah. Maybe it's one of the so. eight inch ones. <laughs> it's a baby, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, it's still better than the original record album. In fact, I think that's probably what Larry's uh, grabbing off to the side there. The yeah. original record album art is pretty terrible. Um, Allison, what was your first impression? <laughs> well, I am a pescatarian, so I actually requested to do this one because it sounded delicious. And I will say that initially they, uh, the writer went out of his way to make sure that it, one did not imagine it smelling delicious. <laughs> so uh, I, um, I'll use the camera here to say I've got uh, material here. So it started off with, oh, this is very nice. And then it gets angrier and angrier by the fourth page yes. till there's stuff in all caps like, why do they want London? It is land. <laughs> so uh, the, the overall first impression is at first I really enjoyed it. By the end, I was so very exasperated and disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I noticed in my own notes that the, the swearing, which generally happens in my notes anyway, gets so intense by the end that I'm in all caps rage at one point. Yeah. I, I started off predisposed to really like it a lot. And when I first started reading it, I liked it a lot. Yeah. And there are many things about it I liked, but my God, did it go downhill quickly after around 70 page mark, I'd say. The the PDF you sent us was 135 pages, I think. Yeah, yeah. And it should have ended much. much there's the all caps rage. Sarah's eyes are not <laughs> fucking brown. <laughs> that was in all caps. Understandably, yeah. because... Although, if there's anything you could get away with in an audio. Yeah, yeah but still, it's Sarah Jane. Uh, yeah. Anyway, so where do we start with this thing? <laughs> 
Well, first of all, I do have a question for you. How does this match up in the overall, you know, pantheon of Target novelizations, given that this was the last one printed with the Target imprint? How does mm, this... They really did run out. They did. How does this hold up to what you've read so far as a Tom Baker slash Sarah Jane Smith story? I think, yeah, like like Allison said, the, the story itself like started off kind of strong. It was interesting what was going on. You know, we, there was a little mystery. Um, but yeah, once we kind of got halfway through it, it was like, what? what? Why? Huh? <laughs> What's the actual invasion? Um, but but like even even with that, I, I feel like the writing is decent. It's not horrible. It doesn't feel like uh, kind of phoned in or anything. Okay. But uh, the doctor feels kind of not like the doctor. Well, not like the fourth doctor anyway. He's very much like the second doctor, which is the problem. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There is that. And then Sarah Jane, instead of fainting, just screams a lot. And... Was it falls to the doctor's arms twice? Yeah. Yeah. Flings herself into the doctor's arms. Some kind of projectile trajectory towards the doctor's arms. Projectile vomiting. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) It's the smell. Yes. It's all the fish. I know that Dave in particular has said that he's not very happy when Sarah Jane faints in the novels. And then this one, she doesn't so much faint as just, you know. Lurch forward. Lurch forward. Exactly. Well, what's good about this book? What would you say is good about this book? Oh, that's a long silence. (laughs) Uh, I think you're lagging. Yeah. The atmosphere. I I really like the atmosphere um, initially. You know, you do get the feeling of dread. A lot of the descriptions of like the green mist and the, the green light that the the pescatons are emitting it really gives you like an eerie feeling okay um and especially since they don't uh they don't come out in the daytime so everything every scene with them unless they're dying is happening at night so you really get this kind of foreboding feeling okay and i thought within that there was a nice contrast between the night scenes we have the first one set with a very dixian prologue except no one dies in the prologue. So it's not quite a Dick's prologue um, where we have this sort of you know, dark, sacred night, shimmering waters, very ethereal scene. And then the next scene is it's muggy and it smells like a fish fry out here. And that was a nice <laughs> contrast yet. Well, for the doctor's dive where it's so sort of muggy and hot above the surface. And then it's below the surface of the estuary, both otherworldly and calming and yet at the same time it's polluted with all this sort of detritus of everyday life and I I, I really like the world building isn't quite the right term but the the scene setting and the mood setting for the first half of the the book which is why the second half was so disappointing when it sort of devolves into their emergency vehicles and everyone is screaming because the pescatons are raising hell like football hooligans yeah. The football hooligans who try and eat everybody every Saturday afternoon. Man, football culture is a lot worse than I realized yeah. in the 70s. I, th- I think the, probably the scene Arsenal setting in, that first, <laughs> in the first part is what made that second part uh, so perplexing. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And it also has, even though it kind of hits you over the head with it, it's got a very kind of nice environmentalist theme going because... 
Mm-hmm. We we know that the Pescatons destroyed Pesca essentially through something or other, some sort of global warming. And we hear Sarah in particular saying a few things about, you know, we're destroying this planet of ours, so why would they want it? It's like, well, we're going to destroy it anyway. So there is that. Anything else good about it before we start hammering at this thing? Because this isn't going to be one of our positive podcasts, by the way, everyone. Uh (laughs) Sorry, I was going to go into not good, so I'll hold my tongue. (laughs) Uh, Well, Helen is cool as hell, so I'm not sure why the writer hates her. Uh, (laughs) I've never smoked in my life and now I want to start just so I can do it this magnificently (laughs) passive aggressively Uh. yeah he introduces her and she's very badass in her own way but he kind of passes off that badassery as oh she's a smoker oh she's not listening to her fiance and it's got this very kind of i i hate to be stereotypical but i know that there are certain segments of the gay male population that have this kind of woman hating vibe going and victor pemberton seems to be giving in to his worst devils when he does that because she's the only other female character besides sarah Well, maybe he thinks she smells like fish because clearly he finds that the most disgusting thing imaginable, (laughs) given how much he works on the disgustingness of the creatures in a way that seems very strange for me, that we're constantly told that not only the humans, but also the doctor finds the pescatons repulsive and disgusting and revolting. And I, it seems very narrow minded for a universe trotting alien like the doctor to be so grossed out by gills, mm-hmm. I- including the elements that were yeah. told, they actually sound quite beautiful, like the metallic shimmering scales and the, the transparent brain. It actually all sounds quite fascinating and sort of shivering. But the writer tells us, no, gross, 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 fish, ew, fish. Yeah, fishy, slimy, nasty, yuck. So I wasn't going to go quite that Freudian with it, Tony, but I think you've left me no choice. He does not well. like fish. No, I, I think that I think it's definitely there. Well, he seems to have a fixation with the aquatic anyway, doesn't he? Because Fury from the Deep, then this. It's, yeah, there's a theme going on there, and it's all having to do with his repulsion of the smell of the sea, shall we call it. But the other big difficulty there is that this is one of the few, possibly the only Doctor Who novelization that we've read so far, where the Doctor and Sarah both characterize the villains as totally and unrepentantly evil. They're, yes. they're not just creatures that are trying to survive and doing the wrong thing and trying to survive by taking over a populated planet. They are evil and they must be destroyed. And they do something that is outright, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You know, when you kill a whole group of people, uh, genocidal. There we go. I don't know why I was blinking out on that word. It's the turkey. Yeah. Genocidal? And, genocidal. All right, genocidal. <laughs> yes, that's it. I don't know. I haven't done it this week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's the only book where we have that happen. And it kind of betrays Pemberton's lack of knowledge about the very series that he's writing for or wrote for. And it's a little disturbing to see the fourth doctor in particular saying, oh, they're evil. They must be destroyed. I can't do a Tom Baker, so I don't even try. And that part we went in for this a little bit with the Daleks, and I thought there was another species as well. He was okay with killing them all. 
Well, that's true, but... And there are others where he objected to killing them all, and someone else did it. We give them a papal dispensation, don't we, though? I mean, the Daleks, the Cybermen are essentially, well, evil. But, yeah, it, it happens a lot in the course of this book. Well, yeah, but... their, their motives are usually a little different than just trying to survive. Mm-hmm. Agreed. So Agreed. I did not understand how and when and if the Pescatons actually destroyed Pesca. Because it sounds like not just atmospheric conditions deteriorating because of their misuse of resources. I, I thought they were... I thought their sun was destroying them independently of their actions. It, it confused me because we're told that they used up all the resources on their planet, but what we see is they're forced from the surface water into the groundwater and then to another planet. Mm-hmm. But I, I missed what they actually did to destroy their and own planet, and I'm not it, sure if it was actually there. Yeah. It, I I never got any any actual description of it. The understanding was that similar to what's happening on Earth, their ozone layer was depleted, which meant that the sun's radiation would cause the surface to just be. But then the planet blows up, and that's that's a lot of ozone depletion. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> boiled from the inside. And for that matter, whatever sun it is that boiled away the waters of their planet, it's apparently one No, there's one only one in... sun in this book. There's the sun. I was Thank about to one. say, it's the one in our solar system because we can see Pesca, we can see the surface of Pesca with a telescope in the mid-1970s from Earth. Which it's is... not a sun, it's the sun. It's not oh their sun versus our sun, it's the sun. Yeah, there's no indication that they're in another solar system. (laughs) Yeah, there's no indication they're they're in another solar system at all. I'm sorry, star system. We're the only solar system. But we're told about galaxies, plural, which have more than one sun. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Which is just... Oh, God, there's so many things. Yeah, we might as well pile onto it. What else is problematic about this? (laughs) Well, since you asked for something negative, I'd like to say something positive, just to be okay. contrary. Please do. I've got notes in chronological. Just to be contrary. I, I thought contrarian. it was interesting, the description of the doctor's polarized sen- senses, that it takes him a while to adjust to alien smells. I wasn't that sure if that meant he doesn't detect anything at first as he gets used to them, or it takes him a while to figure out what would be strange for this environment. Like, maybe it takes him a while to figure out that 1970s estuary um, at the mouth of the Thames shouldn't smell like this, for example. But I like that he was slow on the uptake on smells and then he hears and feels the vibration before Sarah does. We're actually told he can hear things that humans can't. So I thought that was interesting that he has sort of a description of senses tuned a little differently, a little higher or a little lower than ours in comparison. Mm -hmm. And yet he loses all sense of time somehow because... (laughs) This doesn't happen in the book, thankfully. But on the record album, he asks Sarah what month it is, and it's like, wait a minute, yeah. couldn't you um, couldn't you see that on the TARDIS display, or there's a handy dandy newspaper that's sitting around that you can read it off of? No, he asks Sarah what month it is because she's from Earth, so obviously she knows. Yeah. Well, and with all the talk of looking at the green lights and the houses across the bay, for this horrible moment, I thought they were doing going to do like a riff on the Great Gatsby, and they actually landed in the twenties, and they're not in London at all. (laughs) uh, We did not go in that direction. (laughs) But 
yeah. and what what's the yeah. the bit with Sarah not being from the time? Ah, well, uh, it almost seemed like they were saying she was from the mid '60s instead of the mid '70s. No, no, it's I, the I other direction. I couldn't figure if they were trying to say that they were in the '80s, yeah, or if it's the '60s. So, yes, her credentials are ten years out of date. Well, yeah. here's the problem. I I was I was hesitant to talk about this until we talked about Pyramids of Mars because it doesn't come up in the book, but it definitely comes up in the show. And this is something that screws up everything with unit dating. It's this. Every story that's featured unit has been implied to be five years in the future or thereabouts. When we get to Pyramids of Mars, yeah, not the date probe, Exactly right, Bart, but we are going there. Uh, she specifically says, I'm from 1980. Hmm. And that becomes a real issue later, because later on we get a story with the Brigadier set during the uh, Queen's, I believe it's the Silver Jubilee, which is 1983. And that, yes, the unit dating controversy, exactly right, Jay. <laughs> it, it completely screws everything up and causes just a shit show for all of us who like things neat and tidy though if we like things neat and tidy i don't know why we're watching this damn show <laughs> but pemberton apparently has been told that sarah jane is from the 80s and if he's going to set this in the mid 70s which is actually when the record was going to be released then there has to be that time shift which is kind of cool in its own way because it means that they can't fall back on unit for some reason or other mm. Probably because Pemberton doesn't know about Unit. Weird to draw attention to it like that, though. Well, he doesn't know which Doctor this is either, so. Yeah, there is that. That's true. That's <laughs> yes. true. And come Just to think fish of it, bad. That's what he knows. <laughs> this is definitely true. So what else? What else gets us? Speaking of being born ceaselessly into the past, <laughs> so the Doctor has this memory of the way Earth looked previously and how rich the colors were he, when he looked at the land masses and the oceans and how comparatively faded the colors are now. And then that paralleled later when he's recalling when he first went to Pescaton how pale the colors were on the surface and how the cones there were all bleached out. Uh, at this point, it seems strange to me, but maybe I'm thinking too far in the 80s and later here. Uh, it seems strange to me that the Doctor has seen Earth up to the mid-1970s, but are, at this point, has he not seen a post-1970s Earth? Like, he shouldn't be surprised at the general geologic... I mean, he's speaking in geologic ages here. He shouldn't be this surprised at the general condition of the Earth in the 20th century at this point, I would think. He really but, should not. I, no, because he's been to... Has, has he been to Earth Futures yet? Or Future Earth? Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah, yeah That's what I thought. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, I, I think what Pemberton's going for there is to make the Doctor even more of an outsider so that he can be surprised by the state of the planet at that point, though. Uh, we, we usually don't even use the Doctor that way. But of all people who shouldn't be surprised. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, and that's right. In the chat, we were saying, uh, Jay says that that dating problem gets referenced in the Santaran stratagem. And he also says Day of the Doctor, uh, Kate mentions various dating protocols. So yeah, the unit thing is just a mess. And the show, to the point that the show has to reference it. 70s or 80s, depending on the dating <sighs> So now we get it referenced in this book as well. Oh, Lord. What else? 
There's so many things to say. <laughs> well, while uh, I'm showing off by showing I'm aware of other cultural things that exist in time and space, um, we're told that Mike is baby-faced and has shoulder-length blonde hair. Just from there on out, it was John Denver in my mind. Just <laughs> fan casting there. Like a member of ABBA. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Lord, this is true. I like that the Doctor seems so interestingly unsettled and afraid for a lot of the first half of the book. I thought that was a nice scene setting. And then as things got worse, he actually seemed less that way in a way that did not mm -hmm. make sense to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because we're used to him being on top of things. But even especially when he gets into the diving suit and goes down, he's incredibly vulnerable. And then when yeah. we get that that trip back to Pesca in the 15th century, which leads to Sarah saying, how old are you anyway? Which is bizarre because she knows how old he is because he's told her. <laughs> it's, it's very odd that he yeah. should be so incredibly vulnerable. We'd expect the second doctor to be that vulnerable, but not the fourth. Well, so when he takes that trip, he is so struck at how profoundly evil the Pescatons are. But compared to other species he likes, we don't actually see them being all that bad. No. no. Like, we don't see the destruction that they've wrought. If he doesn't like creatures who raise crabs for meat, I don't know why he likes the company of the humans <laughs> so much. Maybe he just doesn't Possibly. know yet. No. But it's very strange that he has such a strong reaction on Pesca. A strong reaction against the very concept of helping them survive without more evidence of their supposed profound evil because all we see them is all we see them doing is asking for help and trying to coerce it but others have done that before and he's happy to at least try to help them even if he helps them yeah. in a different way than they wanted him to maybe maybe someone wants the doctors to destroy all their enemies and he says well let's let's see if there's another approach that we could take for you to survive so the fact that he flat out rejects the idea of helping them to survive from the get-go i think requires stronger evidence of how bad they are other than they ranch crabs and uh, <laughs> related to that, does he help them accidentally or not? Like, does do they leave in TARDISes that they have learned to build properly from information <laughs> oh that they've extracted from his brain? Because remember, they had the crap ones that were like the set pieces with just the phones inside. So they had the idea they wanted, this is what they wanted him to help with. They wanted the doctor to show them how to make a TARDIS. Number one, does he actually know how to build one? And then, I, I, I don't know. Uh, and then number two, did he accidentally give them that information, just sort of having it extracted from his brain before he was allowed to just sort of wander off through the cave? Did they get to Earth on Ooh. bad TARDISes? Bad TARDI? I, That's I a lot more thought than I put into They become it. rhetorical <laughs> as I keep firing them. That's <laughs> probably even more thought than the story actually deserves. But <laughs> What kind of help do they want now? Like, what more information do they want to get out of him? Hmm. Why, what does Zor still want with I them? think it might be actual TARDISes so that they can go elsewhere other than Earth, but yeah. Yeah, because the, sh the ships that are described are not actual. I thought they might be kind of like half soup. They souped up the boxes better. <laughs> I don't know. Well, they were described as cylindrical, so that already is not the same. Yeah, they, like they're clearly they're doing a bad job of building them. They want to learn how to build them well, but they built something well enough that they were able to escape and pilot well, to Earth. And, and they're described as uh, like 
taking off from the planet where yeah. the you know Emerson can see them taking off or Sarah Jane can see them taking off um so there's some kind of propulsion which uh I've never seen that from the TARDIS. I had to either till um, the end of this book it seemed like someone yeah. watches the TARDIS take off or like at least a contrail yeah. or something. Yeah. And so I thought maybe that's the implication. That's an artifact of 60s Doctor Who. In fact, in Fury from the Deep, which Victor Pemberton wrote, the TARDIS does kind of land on the water. So it's odd. And in Tomb of the Cybermen, they can see the TARDIS coming down. So it does have this hover mode. And in fact, uh, Owl Trape said it in the chat. Yeah, well, we've but seen it landing there's... many times, but it doesn't... F- fly around like the elevator in Charlie and a Chocolate no. Factory, which is what we seem to have here. Like it, we just see it materialize and land, I thought. Now, it story. does do that in the new series because we've seen well, it happen in, in, in the new series. Stories. In, yeah, in, in more recent series, it does kind of fly around like that. But, but yeah, this is not something that Pemberton would have known about. Yeah, it, it, it's weird. In fact, Basically, what I was saying was something along the lines of maybe this is why the Pescatons are said to have this gift for mimicry, because it doesn't play into the story at any other time. In fact, if it had played into the story back when the LP was produced, they wouldn't have needed the Canadian actor to play Zor because Tom Baker could have done Zor's voice as well. In fact, that would have been more entertaining, I think. Hmm. Yeah. I think it's entertaining for the most evil species. Apparently, we can imagine they cast a Canadian. What's a really evil voice? What's shorthand for really, really vile and wicked? Maybe, maybe it's the way we give villains British accents. Doesn't like fish, doesn't like Canadians. <laughs> exactly. The British give them Canadian accents. I don't know. Oh, God. Oh, what else? What else? This... Did they eat that teenager and that little boy? Good question. Yes. What do you think? Um, I think they're fish food. I think they ate them. So why did they have to be so elaborate about it? Because sometimes they just seem to tear around the streets, biting people and eating them in chunks while the people are still screaming. And then other times they seem to lay an elaborate trap. And I thought they were... I thought it suggested they put one person inside the comb to be nourishment oh, yeah. in the yeah. hatchling patch, maybe? Yeah, yeah that's what I, I was getting out of it, was that it was kind of a, a way to to feed the, the hatchlings. But then we were told that Martin was being sought out for his intelligence because they want super brains. But it's totally different from the doctor's intelligence, which is breadth of experience and accumulated knowledge, as opposed to Martin, who is very bright, but as some kid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. did they just want Martin for a snack? Or did <laughs> they, are they in some way absorbing either intelligence or collective yeah. knowledge? I, and there's the implication that that's what's happening, but it's not taken nearly far enough because Pemberton just doesn't think that deeply. He's very good at expanding things, Obviously, since we had Fury from the Deep as a bumper volume, simply because the editors couldn't get it chopped down properly. And that seems to be what's happened here, that he's introducing all these potential plot points, and none of them are really going anywhere interesting, which is kind of a shame. And I'm catching up with the chat, too. Uh, John says that the TARDIS did hover in Runaway Bride. Yes, it did. Yeah, in a very amusing scene. Jay says in the Master, Masters of Luxor, the Doctor does fly the TARDIS like a helicopter. 
Yeah, that's true. And uh, let's see, he, but, uh, Tom also has played second characters in um, the audio ghost scripts. Oh, that's right. I forgot all about that. And probably because he did play Rasputin. Oh, it was more than a major BBC drama, Trey. That was um, the movie Nicholas and Alexandra. That was a huge, major cinematic hit. But yeah, he was Rasputin in it, so that's probably it. It would have been nicer if he had been Zor, but there you go. For a lot of the book, is there only one adult Pescaton stomping around and just tearing around town and eating people until all the others hatch? I think so. Yeah, yeah. I think that's all it is. And it's also the one who is the same one we see at the very beginning, the same one who basically takes a baseball bat to the aquarium and is the first <laughs> yes. one to die. Yes, exactly. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't sure I was getting the plot yeah, point right Yeah, that's here. essentially it. And what I also don't get is why, if they knew that the sun is inimical to them, why do they come out of the water in the first place? As you pointed out, Allison, what do they need land for? I did like that as soon as you figure out, okay, sunlight is what's going to kill them, the book essentially says, yes, duh, sunlight is what kills them. We're going to do some other things before we get there. It's not e it's not that easy to just lure them out into the sunlight. They can go away during the night and you Ugh. have to survive. I mean, you can go away during the day and you have to survive all night. Like, sort of, once once you see what's coming, then the writer actually says, yes, that's what's coming, but it's harder than that to, <laughs> to get there. But I don't understand why they want London if... Is it the nourishment? But they eat crabs. Why, why do they... Why do they want anything on land at all? I, I understand we have this concept that they seem to have uh, the hatchery uh, aspects on land. But why? But those are t almost tamper-proof. Like, it's incredible effort to get into even one of them, and we're told that there are dozens, maybe hundreds of those around. So I, they're on the one hand, they're super intelligent. On the other hand, they're too stupid to swim towards the Atlantic instead of up the Thames right. towards London. On the one hand, they're, they, they crave more knowledge from land people. On the other hand, it seems like there's no benefit to their conquest. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, the earth is mostly ocean. The humans clearly aren't going to be able to defend it from them. Why don't they just go eat that <laughs> or live there? And if all they need is, if they, all they need land for is hatcheries, they seem to already have the technology to defend the hatcheries. Exactly. I feel like I was missing something more profound. Like, is this supposed to be the evil, not the evil, but the evil to, yes, I like that, Jay, yes, invade Ven uh, Venice. There's like a whole hot bar there of people. You could just swim up yeah. to the different buffets. There's a cold bar, <laughs> the steam bar. Uh, but it, is this supposed to be evidence of their evil that they uh, want to dam dominate the whole planet just because they can't? And if so, I I'm running out of out of indignation here. Yeah, I think that's yeah. exactly it. Well, Pemberton hasn't just hasn't put enough work into it. And I think what we're missing is competent writing. I mean, as Dalton said, the actual prose itself <clears throat> is pretty good, except when it goes all purple. And that happens a lot. Yeah. But the actual <laughs> motivations Sometimes behind it. Sometimes a bit everything. blue, yes. Yes. But yeah, oh God, yeah. That's a little bit of a surprise too. But... Yeah, the actual motivations aren't very well thought out at all. In fact, <laughs> I, I listened to the album ahead of time. You're welcome, so that you would not have to. <laughs> and the album holds together better than the book does, probably because there's less plot. <laughs> there's less things to have to uh, question. So for everything that yeah. Pemberton adds to it, 
he takes away some of the 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 sense of it. I like that Jay just points out that he... yeah. So, but it's a record, so budget isn't an issue for rec- recreating <laughs> Venice. The writer probably didn't think about it. He absolutely did not think about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know how weary I become of tunnel chases, cave chases, shoots and ladders chases, hallway chases, and I actually thought it was fun for them to have the estuary to play around with, and I thought good use was made of that. Yeah. Um, although you would think it wouldn't be that prohibitive, cost prohibitive to film on small boats around London. But uh, yes, they had the opportunity for more creativity and used it, I think, in terms of the underwater scenes. But not, it's the actual plot that makes no sense. Yeah. And James says, unless Pemberton couldn't be bothered to alter an old script of his. Yeah, I think that's it. It's, it's minimal oh. effort put in, to be honest. Well, first, I actually really liked that it was an estuary because... Estuaries are estuaries and inland waterways and you know, the Everglades is, of course, one of the principal examples of this and deltas, all these different places where freshwater and saltwater mix are uh, incredibly important for reproduction for different species of mostly sea creatures than some birds as well, because they only reproduce in these certain balances, these certain mixes saline mixes of fresh and salt water so i thought that was actually kind of interesting the idea that they found this estuary maybe it was just the condition they needed to breed in and then nothing came of that it was like maybe accidental profundity nothing comes of anything in this book that's the big problem (laughs) as trey pointed out the album was meant for kids and just a simple story to listen to the novelization tried to expand it make it more horrific and adult but there wasn't story there it would have been 50 pages yeah um, he also says it's interesting that it's about alien sharks and it came out right after Jaws made a major impact. Yes. Yeah, I, I have yeah. suspect that's part of it. But why do the novelization unless Target was just so desperate <laughs> that they needed something to publish at that point and thought if you slap any old piece of... In, fa- in fact, at this point, I'm surprised they didn't novelize Dimensions in Time. Because if they were that desperate for things to novelize, and I see James shaking his head, yeah, I'm surprised they didn't novelize it, though, mm-hmm. and expand it, even though that had even less plot. Ugh. I would never have guessed, though, that I would never have guessed that this was a, a different kind of book than the other Target books. I wouldn't have guessed that it was never an episode. Really? I can easily visualize this as an episode. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, he said they're on water instead of in caves, but it's... It's, they're not in Venice. They're not in some sort of exotic, difficult to reproduce um, locale. No. It's the actual plot that I'm complaining about, not the mode of novelization. Like the Barry Letts novels were were very different from the other tar- from the Target novelizations. Like different style, different length, different density, exotic locations. Uh, this I can't believe I'm saying this. This needed Terrence Dix to try to pull it together yes. again, tighten up the plot it he could really have done did. it he could have massaged that plot and pulled these things we're talking about together with just a few lines something like oh they're like cats or wolverines they kill for fun they kill more than they can possibly eat that's how they killed their own planet that you know something like that that might not be very satisfying but wouldn't be quite so enraging yes and despite the fact that terence dix has his own moments like an upcoming line, uh, a line in the upcoming Planet of Evil where you have a sun that's like 50 light years away or something and it's managing to keep a planet warm. 
he knows a lot more about actual astronomy than Pemberton seems to. So, yeah. And I don't. So if you, if I am taken aback by the scientific blunders in a sci-fi novel, it's really bad. I like, I have the bar on the floor for scientific knowledge (laughs) (laughs) when it comes to this sort of thing. Like, ah, it's sci-fi. It's fine to make things up. But the sun was one of them. And, Oh, I have to wow. The sun that's burning you out of the, the galaxies, that's the, the line. The fact that there's just the one. Yeah. And the fact that they, some of the people, some of the Pescatons went to Venus. Yes! Oh, God. Which had the same thing happen to it that Pesca had happened to it. Let's pull that string, what? shall we? <laughs> and the doctor saying there are oceans there? What? Yeah. And also, okay, so the rebel Pescatons. <laughs> they can fly the fuck to Venus if they want to. They can go tear up the aquarium if they want to. But there's only one hive mind. But they're super intelligent. But they're also slave minds and dumb as rocks on their own. They can't do anything without permission. They're not allowed unless they want to fly to Venus or go visit the otters at the aquarium. <laughs> so do they have free will or not? And if they do have free will, they can choose to exercise. Do they retain their high intelligence? Or uh, just sputter, sputter, impotent fists. Do they have high intelligence to begin with? They're tiny fists. Can high intelligence actually be said to have anything to do with this book at all? Well, I thought that Zor was supposed to be a super intelligent and, and controlled all of the others. But Zor is really quite bad at planning, I would argue. Yeah. And... The rebel Pescatons, they don't make the best choices, but they're also not just like blundering off like mindless uh, infants. Because the doctor seems to think that going to Venus is a viable plan. Maybe not the best plan, but Mm -hmm. something that one might try. And going to the aquarium (laughs) instead of going to the Atlantic, even though it's not a very good plan, also has some sense of intelligence. They're seeking the salt water, seeking the resource. He just loses track of time, stays all night partying with the octopus <laughs> that writer had a really bad experience with an aquarium really and an aquarium did. as a child i think but <laughs> this is what made me angry was the the nature of the mental enslavement and intelligence and what the what connections there were or not and i just i can't form sentences anymore that's fine power speech yeah. I, yeah. this this Gone. book kind of robs you of any intelligence you have after <laughs> for several hours after you've read it well you didn't tell us that before you assigned it uh, well when do i ever tell you these things <laughs> i got exams next week <laughs> i know that well just don't go back to the book in fact put it far far away from you and you'll be fine it'll be perfectly fine or maybe just do some sort of uh do some sort of exorcism to get out, get it out of your head that may be yeah. the only thing. <laughs> Jesus. Um, anything else about this? Because there's not a lot to say. Why the fuck did Zor <laughs> go to the tube? <laughs> I don't know. I, I'm like, I understand. Yeah, like like you said, I understand the one pescaton going to the aquarium looking for salt water. But going into the London Underground seems... What? It's dark. But why does Sarah go there? Why does Sarah say, I, who know that they die in sunlight, why do I, instead of walking or biking or, you know, fighting for a taxi or stealing a car or something, decide to go to the only underground, all dark means of conveyance in town? Pant, (laughs) pant, pant. pant. (laughs) Yes. I get Zor wanting to go there because it's dark and he won't be burned. 
Yeah, but Eric's rage critic quitting us. Bye, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> we love no, him. he had to go to another. He had to go to another panel. But yeah, I I wouldn't blame him at this point to be honest. <laughs> there, I will say there were times when I was reading this, I was like, do I have to? Do I have to get all the way to the end? I know how this ends. This is one of the few Doctor Who books that I have never tracked down a physical copy of because I don't want it. It's just, you know, <laughs> yeah, precisely. So those of you who have a copy of it, I'm so... If people leave rude comments in the future, not just critical comments, but, you know, inappropriately personally negative or something, can you send them a copy of this? Oh, <laughs> if I could track down whoever that troll is that keeps giving us bad reviews on iTunes, I would send him a crate of copies of the Pescatons if the I could PDF get hold of them. Printed off. Oh, God. That's for damn true. Uh, okay, why is the doctor stupid as well? Doctor says that Martin was supposed to form a point of communications, end quote, between Zor and the doctor. And Zor never gets around to even giving it a try. And they didn't need a, a smart kid to communicate on Pesca, so why do they need one now? No idea. And why does the doctor, like everyone else, sit on his thumb for a week while the pescatons gestate? Eggs don't germinate. That was the other thing, right? While they gestate, not germinate. Why is the doctor also just sitting around saying, oh, well, what can you do? I guess I'll wait for them to mature and come kill us all. I don't like the doctor being stupid. It's one thing for the doctor to be mistaken. It's another thing for him to be an idiot. I agree. Without a good in-story reason why he was deceived or why he misapprehended the situation. Oh, no. They've decided to start doing lawn work outside the window. <laughs> oh, oh, Jesus. My dear it's a lovely God. day. It is a lovely day, but Christ almighty. Yeah, it's, yeah. Well, they're vacuuming about all the pescatons. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, People think it's matcha and they're harvesting oh. it and making tea. Well, there's so many sure. other things, too, such as the fact that they have these cones that are supposedly impenetrable, but they can be knocked over. And you can get somebody out of it if they're underwater. You can just kind of click and knock it over, and it's yeah. not impenetrable. It's the stupidest thing ever. Yeah, they could have just dug underneath them to get whoever out. Yeah, and they don't even need to do that because they can knock them over. It's so ridiculous. Oh, uh, the, this, the scene of the Pescatons creating the the cones, though, did uh, remind me of watching Great British Bake Off. Um, like <laughs> some some kind of pipe, some kind of piped meringue. That, yeah, it's... I thought it was an aspic. <laughs> Those you know things from the seventies you see bad photography of. There's like olives and fish in it. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Oh my god. Right. Oh. The last thing that I have is a selection of dirty lines. Oh, yes, please. Yes, please. Dirty lines. Give it to us. Give it to us now. <laughs> the first one is not dirty. It's just a pescatarian mind because uh, I read he looked around for some crevice. And I dropped a letter and read it as he looked around for some ceviche. <laughs> just one letter different. But uh, so that's not a dirty line. That's more. Uh, yeah. It's the right book for me, it. Me feeling snacky. Yes. <laughs> Um, okay, so first one I've got is, I suppose you could say that in my time, I've had some rather interesting encounters with quite a lot of rare large fish. 
<laughs> Apparently, this is also enough to get you a government-facilitated dive where everyone else is like, all right, suit him up. Give him some gear and a boat. We'll let, the, we'll let the dirty fish fucking guy go dive. Oh, this is why we're not PG. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Pardon my... Pardon my language. Uh, he could see Zor spread out before him as just the highlight of that passage. <laughs> The train was rocking and vibrating to Zor's command. This is set, you know, in the tunnel that Zor has expanded to fill. Oh my god, you're killing me. That's such... I, I, felt I, I exercised restraint with just, you know, those few selections. But it did provide some strong entertainment value. I must have just gotten to the point where I was just so exhausted that I was just zipping through it trying to get it done with and... Oh, um, Trey says, if we're going to adult stuff, Pemberton mentioned them prowling around Hampstead Heath at night, and apparently that's Major Gate cruising spot in London. Yeah, I think that may have been intentional. Mm. Yeah, because Pemberton yeah. would have known. Well, at, at one point, was it, um, I like the little vignettes with uh, Jess and Tommy and Ben. Um, ah, that was... Mm -hmm. That 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 would have been a typical Terrence Dix prologue is uh, teens being eaten in the river and then it goes back to being a peaceful, beautiful night. And then, uh, you know, the the older man absconds with their gear. But <laughs> you know, Ben has figured out it's not safe to sleep by the river. So he decides to go sleep by a pond um, <laughs> while all the sea creatures <laughs> are tearing around eating people. And so he right. sees. So I think is he the one who comes out of the park and. The doctor sees him and says, oh, are they in the park? Like, they're all over the fucking place. They're all over town. It's not an event if they're in the park. Yes, they're in the park. They're everywhere. <laughs> right. I don't remember what my point was there. Maybe I just needed to get it off my chest. My chest, which does feature, hang on here, the official <laughs> t-shirts that were provided. Oh, sorry. I don't have this set up properly here. Yeah, oh. The t-shirts that were provided us by Tony last year. I And I couldn't find mine in the uh, laundry because there's a quarter shortage. So I haven't done laundry in months. Yeah. <laughs> See, I wore it initially last year when you gave them to us and then like I wore it a couple more times when I washed it and I haven't worn it since because I want to keep it pristine for formal occasions. But I've only been to and one wedding. And this is a formal occasion? No, we don't go to weddings and funerals. <laughs> so yes, yes. Don't go to weddings oh. and funerals anymore. So. Goodness. All right. Um, well, does anybody have any other points to make about this book? Because, oh, James uh, points out, I read Matthew Waterhouse's autobiography, and I'm sure he mentioned spending a lot of time with Pemberton getting introduced to the gay scene in London. I, I remember that, too. So, yeah, I, I think that's the case. We, it would have been course, a much more interesting book. Yeah, oh, much more interesting than this, that's for sure. Hell, I would I would prefer to reread Matthew Waterhouse's autobiography than read this again, because Christ on a fucking cross. Anyway, does anybody have any other points uh, to A final make? complaint. All right. Um, just, just looking through my highlights, uh, I'll, I'll come up with some things. Saying that the fourth Doctor is playing a flute oh. just while, while Zor is disintegrating... Yeah. Yeah, since since when? But okay. Yes. That that was yeah, very Trouton-esque. Yes. And the fact that he's just as bloodthirsty as Trouton. Oh my god. Yeah. 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 That yeah, we could absolutely see Patrick Trouton playing on his recorder, not his flute, but his recorder, while genocide is going on around him that he himself has started. But yeah, the Tom Baker <laughs> Doctor, no. 
No, in fact, no, no, just, just no, just not right. Absolutely not. There's the scene where they say that the Pescatons made it uh, further upriver to the outer slopes of Windsor Castle, and it was reported later that the royal occupant, who happened to be in residence at the time, was not amused. Womp womp. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. not even rimshot worthy, is it? Oh, God. No. There's also a <laughs> Doctor Who like... joke in this book. There's one of those. Uh, Doctor Who. Well, yeah. if you prefer. It's like, oh, for sake come on oh i know this the album was for children but the book isn't supposed to well the book is i guess supposed to be but it's written in the 90s or thereabouts and so it's meant to be a little more but uh, no pemberton's not your guy for that they should have asked Terrence sticks they really should have any last points before we go to goodreads there was the line about uh, during all his travels through time and space, the doctor had learned how to detect a presence, whether it was physical or supernatural. No, he hasn't. So the idea of him <laughs> kind of having a sixth sense. <laughs> no, no, he hasn't. <laughs> I mean, supposedly the doctor can just like, can feel Daleks around, but he hasn't done that since the first doctor's time. So, yeah, no. I mean, that that would have worked worked for me the idea is very good at sensing different intelligences and kinds of creatures that we're not used to experiencing but then he couldn't smell it at 50 yards like everyone else yeah. did so. <laughs> he probably no. just smelled the fish well, we, we just and we just had in one of the recent books uh, kind of an example of sarah doing that mm-hmm. where she felt something being around so oh yeah that that's yeah. upcoming yeah those of you who have been listening to these in order we've recorded one episode out of order so dalton knows about planet of evil even if uh we technically don't yet but yeah that does happen so it does kind of fit a little bit with the stories around it except it's it's no sort of retake on a classic science fiction horror movie because no Philip Hinchcliffe isn't the producer of this story. Somebody else is, and somebody who doesn't know a damn thing about Doctor Who, apparently. Oh, well. Yeah. The professor poking at the cone with his umbrella. <laughs> Just I am interested like that, in like this career track anything. of movie star slash astronomer. Oh, my God. That's, that's a true renaissance. <laughs> yes. I know. All I, all I can think no, is... No, I actually did find that kind of charming. But Benny Hill decided to retire from comedy and decided to become an astronomer that's all that was going through my head and it's like oh god with lots of half-naked women running around for no yeah. apparent reason i suppose since it's benny hill that actually would have been more interesting <laughs> I don't know. like that jay it's a horror story but not for some of the others are <laughs> yes well, exactly i well i read oh goodness give me my trade secrets half of it yesterday and half of it this morning no secret to tony that i tend to read the last minute uh, and I went to bed last night saying, okay, I'm only going to get halfway through it, but this is actually pretty good. I, you know, it's not the best, but it's perfectly pleasant. This morning, I'm like, was I drinking and not realizing it? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it, it the proportions flip from, oh, this is nice and atmospheric and sort of a fun atmospheric adventure with some annoyances in it, too. This is 95% annoyances with the occasional fun atmosphere. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And Trey says, now I have images of pescatons chasing people to yakety sacks. But so in terms of the theory of it, it's a horror story, but for other reasons, like, Wait, is this the, really the worst thing I've read? Do I have to read this? That's the horror that's building. Is that where this plot is going? <laughs> I can almost guarantee you that there will not ever be another Target book that is quite as bad as this one. 
I can just about guarantee that, of course. Oh, don't throw down. God himself could not sink this ship. Yeah, don't. (laughs) (laughs) Don't throw down challenges. They'll revive the label. I have uh, two two other things that I I thought were uh, entertaining uh, a little bit. Um, the the scene with Sarah uh, basically kind of pushing herself through the police line with her press pass. <laughs> just just the idea that she's just like ah, uh-huh. press, let yep, me through. Yep. Oh, he's with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and her her <laughs> line about the doctor being with her. Um, and then at the very end, once they all the pescatons are gone and they're able to get back into the TARDIS, the fact that there are three pescatons inside of the TARDIS. Yeah. It's a jump scare in a book. But they yeah. didn't dissolve into powder when the others did. It's a fucking jump scare in a fucking book. Yeah. It is the most yeah. ridiculous thing. Why would all the others who were not exposed to light dissolve into powder just because the super intelligence was cut off? I understand them kind of going dormant or dead, but the powder was uh, yeah, I know. Like, trailing off in disgust. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <sighs> I did actually like the the dawn as you were told, the dawn chorus of wild birds continued as though it was a day like any other. I thought he w- might go in an environmentalist direction of a lot of the people are dead, all the pescatons are dead, the birds inherit the earth and eat them all. But he didn't go quite that dark. <laughs> well, well then at least they would have been doing a classic horror movie, but <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. Not at all. So <laughs> Shall we go to Goodreads? All right, as we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers and follow up with their own readings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured, when we get to an upcoming book or simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, and comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of five stars is a surprising 2.8, which I think may be still the lowest rating we've ever seen for a Doctor Who book so far. The reviews from our Goodreads groups have again been edited for length. Sorry, guys, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Damon gives it a very short review, saying, I listened to this as a younger child and enjoyed it. Uh, loved it. A new experience to the books and TV show. <laughs> I remember trying to find the video of the story to watch. The Innocence of Youth. It doesn't hold up as well today, but I still give it three out of five for nostalgia. All. Michael gives it two stars and says, In the days before Amazon, I had to content myself with the quarterly PBS catalog and its page of Doctor Who-related items that I coveted. One of them was a cassette version of Doctor Who and the Pescatons. Miraculously, I found a copy in a store while on a family vacation, snatched it up, thus saving shipping and handling. Alas, I couldn't persuade the rest of the family that this would be great listening material for the return journey from vacation, and had to wait what felt like an eternity to hear it. It would have felt like an eternity if you'd listened to it with the family, Michael. So when I finally got to listen, my expectations were a bit inflated, and yet somehow it struck as me as being pretty cool. Though my young fan mind couldn't quite figure out just how or where it fit into the established Fourth Doctor's continuity. Years later, I picked up the Target novel, and it was one I could never quite finish. It was late in the range, and just as the new adventures were set to come on the scene, maybe I expected too much. Or maybe it's that listening to it again now, I find it's not really a great story. Either way, I have to say this one disappointed me. 
Our Patreon, who's in the room right now, Dave Davis, gives it one star and says, Oh, harsh. Yes, I remember the excitement of seeing the LP in the shop. I also remember the crushing disappointment I felt when I listened to it. From the moment the doctor, the pilot of a time machine, asked Sarah, his passenger, what month it was, it all went downhill. It has been remarked that a good novelization does one of two things. It either is a faithful reproduction of the original story and improves on the original. This book does both. It faithfully reproduces the awfulness of the LP. The, the cover is better. Pemberton, despite being an actor in and a script editor and writer for three Doctor Who stories, doesn't seem to understand the concept of time travel. He has removed the <laughs> aforementioned blunder of the Doctor asking Sarah what month it is on arrival, but made another one that when the Doctor mentions visiting Pesca in the 15th century, and Sarah replies that she wonders just how old he is. There's also a lot of garbled science. The sun is apparently the enemy of the Pescatons because their sun is destroying the world, and it's visible from Earth, but it's in a different galaxy. Perhaps Earth and Pesca revolve around the same sun because it's visible from Earth through an optical telescope. I gave up trying to make sense of it all. There's much more like stars being visible during the full moon, river levels rising because some Pescaton spaceships in the sea, though they don't block the river at all, etc., et bloody cetera. <laughs> if somebody had told Pemberton to rewrite Fury from the Deep but make it worse, this is what he would have ended up with after several drafts. And finally, our Patreon Bart Lammy simply asks the question, why that cover? Why? <laughs> and I would tend to agree. So, let's ask our panelists for their opinions. Dalton, what did you give this out of five stars? <laughs> I would say two point five out of out of five for me. Uh, the writing itself isn't horrible. The story just too many questions, too many holes, too many like what WTF moments. <laughs> yeah, and the first half it was more interesting than the second half. It suffered from the same issue that a lot of the stories we've read have, where it has an interesting kind of setup, and then the end just is so quick it just happens so quickly um so yeah 2.5 for me okay and allison happens so quickly and yet takes an eternity to happen <laughs> so i actually ha had some positive thoughts about this as i said the first time through i actually liked the unsettling atmosphere and the idea of the doctor is afraid and the sort of physical and atmospheric descriptions of the different temperature temperatures etc but then I, I feel like the emblematic um moment of the end of over the last half of the book is the doctor is sprinting around trying desperately to find sarah trying to find the right tube station etc and somewhere along the way we're told he picks up three huge ultraviolet arc lamps that then takes troops to set up because he just found those, I guess, at a newsstand or something along the way and thought that those yeah. would be useful. <laughs> so it kind of broke my heart just a, a tiny, tiny bit, and I take that more personally. So I'm going to go with one which is better than the, 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 the value between zero and one I was thinking of, but it is a holiday weekend, and that felt gratuitously cruel. So I'm going to go with one star. <laughs> it gets, does get a whole star. Even if I like fish a lot more than the writer does. So. Then that means I'm going to be gratuitously cruel because I'm giving this a 0.5. This oh. is far and away the worst Target novel. You're a hard man. I can't stand this book. I really was not looking forward to it. And 
I thought, well, maybe if I lower my expectations, everything will be fine. It even went below lower, my lowered expectations. It was, and your low expectations are quite low. Yes, they are, because I teach you know, English composition. I've seen bad writing. This is bad writing. This is terrible. And it's not just the purple prose. It's not just the lack of plotting. It's not just the doctor being wrong. It's not just Sarah Jane being occasionally right. It's not... It's just a combination of all those things together that somehow this manages to be worse than Dimensions in Time because at least Dimensions in Time, you can enjoy it a bit. For It's campiness. You can watch it. You can laugh at it. You do nothing but laugh at it. Whereas this, no, this was meant to be cod serious. And it's not good. It is bad and it is ugly. Therefore, 0.5. Well, thank you guys. <laughs> and thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Oops, I forgot to start the music there. Son of a bitch. There we go. And off we go. Yes, thank you for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we discuss Terrence Dick's novelization of The Planet of Evil, featuring our old friend Jenny Ingersoll. In the meantime... Yes, if you like what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in word spaces like a crazy person. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetBC, or subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice, including Spotify. If all else fails you, email me directly at emperordolic.gmail.com, the Target Book Club Podcast in the subject line so I don't ignore it. And there's a couple things coming up in the chat. I want to make sure that I don't miss them. Uh, yes, okay, good. People are saying they liked it. I'm surprised. Well, I, I, I assume you meant the podcast rather than the book, because how could anyone like the book? <laughs> anyway, thank you very much for listening. Thank you, everybody, for coming for this live recording, warts and all. Thanks, y'all. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. See ya. <laughs>